Welcome to the Table Podcast, where we discuss issues of God and culture. Brought to you by Dallas Theological Seminary. All right, now let's come to another feature of, of Genesis 1 that gets discussed. I have two things, more things I want to cover in Genesis 1, and that is um, being made in the image of, of God. And then how should we think about the reference to Adam in, in chapter 1? Uh, are, we, are we thinking of Adam and Eve yet, or are we, are we thinking about humanity? So those two points, uh, image of God and Adam. Well, the... The fact of the matter is that in chapter 1, I don't think we're thinking about Adam and Eve yet. I think what's going on is God says, let let us make man. I think it means humankind, humanity. And part of the reason for that is it goes on and it uses the plural talks and let them rule, okay, over the heavens and the earth. And so right from the start, it's treating Adam as a collective, as the... The whole of humanity. This is the place of humanity in the world. Just like we're creating fish and we're creating birds, etc. Right? Yeah, you don't have the first fish, and you know you follow that. It's <laughs> it's 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 the the idea that this is this is uh, something that keeps on renewing itself too because of propagation and so on. So so there's uh, uh, he's made this world to actually work so that uh, it renews itself, it rebuilds, and and that's part of the whole system of how God has set it up with the seasons and all of this from chapter from day four on and so on. So we're so, thinking the ordering of groups. Yes. Sun, and moon, etc. Yeah. Uh, birds, reptiles. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm sitting here thinking, you know, before the before Adam was there Nemo. I mean, was he the first fish? Um, you know, uh, uh, um, the, so so we're dealing with corporate. Groupings here and the general structure of of humanity. Again, thinking through the picture we had earlier, this is the director giving us the big panoramic view to start off with, and then we zero in and take a look at particulars. So that's what's going on with Adam. You think? What about image of God? Well, the image of God, uh, the terminology for image of God, is is very consistently used for you know it's a physical expression. It's like a word for statue. In fact, we have one statue from the ancient, around 1000 BC, that we found in which uh, it's 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 in two languages, Aramaic and Akkadian. And in Aramaic, the this is a language very much like Hebrew. In fact, part of the Bible is written in Hebrew. Parts of Daniel and Ezra is written in Aramaic. And in this, on this particular statue, there's a inscription that tells us about what this statue is for and refers to the statue as the image, the same word that's used in Hebrew, and the likeness, the same word that's used in Hebrew, twice for each of them uh, alternately in reference to this statue of this king that's to represent him here before this God in this particular temple. The point is that we are like God's statue in the world. We're here. He created us as physical beings to function in this physical world, managing it physically and giving us all the capacities to do that in a way that's really pleasing to him. We're supposed to be his representation. 
Now, it, with with the word vice regent or or regents on behalf of God, would that be an image that would work here, or does that say too much or too little? Yes, I think it would be an image that works as long as you understand that it's the whole of humanity that is this statue, as well as each individual person has this status, and so it's a it's an expansive kind of concept because. In order to manage this world, we need to be fruitful and multiply, as it says in verse 28. Uh, and so it, it brings in man and woman as part of this humanity in order to have us propagate to fill the earth. And then it goes on again in verse 28 and says, and rule over you know, the animals and so on in, in the earth. So uh, what happens is it comes right back to that purpose that we have to manage this world uh, as God's physical uh, beings who represent him here as his statue. Well, I we're not, we're not just a dead rock, of course. We're not, right. we're not a regular, but it's, it's a way of talking about us that helps us to know who we are to be representing now, uh, I said I had two questions, and that was on the image of God and Adam, and I've lied because I now thought of a third question that I want to deal with in, in Genesis 1, and that is, let, let's talk about the male and female part of this. Uh, within the image of God, we have this differentiation which represents both diversity and wholeness at the same time. So, so let's talk about how male and female and how gender operate into the concept of image of God, because I think that's an important feature of Genesis 1 as well. Well, in Genesis 1, together we function in the image and likeness of God. Uh, it's very functional, who we, how, we, how we live in this world. It's about what we do, and therefore all that's behind what, what we do in the terms of the way God has made us. Uh, the, it's interesting that it's it's saying that we we are meant to handle the world together as man and woman. Uh, we're not in this thing alone. We're 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 functioning together as units of man and woman together to manage our world and to live in it in ways that are really pleasing to God. Now it, it, that is interesting because in our culture we've got. Uh, uh, we've got this emphasis on the individual, and uh, this emphasis on the individual means that we tend to operate in our own silos, if you will. But the stress that we see in the Old Testament and the stress that we see even coming out of Genesis 1 is the importance of working together and of being able to complement one another in what we do in life. Is that fair that whereas, uh, I often say it this way, whereas the West tends to be a very individualized culture, the culture of the Bible is a very corporate culture and emphasizes the corporate nature of our lives and thinking through a more corporate lens about how I connect to other people and not just thinking myself as kind of this independent individual satellite operating on my own off here to the side. Fair? Yeah, God, God created us as relational beings, uh, and uh, he's relational with us. And we need to be relational with one another. And the core of that relational bond is the man and woman bond uh, in the world. And that comes out very explicitly in chapter 2 as it develops this further down at that level. But the point is that this is the way it is right from the beginning. It's, a, it's, it's man and woman, but it's then also all of humanity together 
that is supposed to function in this way in God's created world. So it would be fair to say that the, you know, what we often call the great commandment, which is to love God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and love your neighbors yourself, really does have its roots in the way this creation story is told at the beginning, and being sensitive to the fact that people are created, are all created in the image of God, and thus have a certain uh, uh, status and, uh, and value that's precious because they've been created to reflect God, and so we ought to treat them with a certain care as a result of, of thinking through the creation. Yeah, that's, that's one of the things that stands out to me about it, is the dignity with which God has created. Now, of course, post-fall, we don't always li- live in dignified ways, but He has created us with dignity, and that's still there. Uh, and we're, we're meant to function in that way, and that means we need to treat people uh, in that way, who are around us, uh, we need to treat people as those created in His image and likeness. So we we don't we mistreat people. It's connected very much. It's interesting when Jesus gives those two great commandments. He was asked to give just one commandment. He refuses to give one. He gives two because they have to go together. Yeah. Now we think of the end of Genesis one, and and we're really making several points. We've got the creation by the one Creator God. There aren't many gods out there. We don't have a battle in the creation for who is on top of it from the start. It's it's His world that's being created. Um, he has created us in the image of God to represent Him in the world. That's very important. Uh, so these core ideas are very important, particularly in a culture that wants to, if I can say it, naturalize the creation. I'm talking about our own world. Um, that wants to naturalize the creation, suggests there is no theological content in the world, uh, that everything can be explained either uh, chemically or, or interrelationally or sociologically, but certainly not theologically. All these things uh, run uh, crash headlong into Genesis 1, and the, and the history that is there that is contained also in the grand story that we've talked about. Fair? Yes. Yes, it is. It is interesting as God introduces the plurality of humanity there in the creation account with the image and likeness. He, he actually re, uh, begins by saying, let us make man in our image and likeness. And this is maybe something I should remark on here. Uh, what, what seems to be happening, and there's a, quite a number of passages in the Old Testament that refer to this uh, heavenly council, God decreeing things in the heavenly council. And uh, like you can look at First uh, Kings 22, the Micaiah incident. You can look at Job chapters 1 and 2 with the angels coming into council with God. You can look at it in Isaiah 6 with going, you know, Isaiah going into the throne room of God with these beings. The, the fact of the matter is there's quite a number of places where this is talked about. It seems that what is happening in Genesis 1 is because he's talking about the plurality of humanity. He's talking about the plurality of the heavenly council, and he's saying, I'm a relational God, too. Now, I think that includes uh, the Trinity as part of what it's talking about, but it's a, it's a broad concept. Our God is a relational God. We cannot be like God without being relational. It's the very nature of who God is. And so there's this background to this whole discussion about why we have that plural there, but I think it's plural because he wants us to understand that even to relate to God, we need to have this 
character about us in terms of relating to people because relating to people is connected to relating to the God who created all of us as His image and likeness. Now, uh, this this theme, I can I, I have to comment on this. This theme runs smack into Islam because the picture of the Islamic God is of a very sovereign God, a very powerful God, but the relational part of who God is is not emphasized in Islam as it is in Judaism and in Christianity. So this is a very important, uh, another important distinctive of the Genesis story and the theology that it's given us. Okay, let's turn our attention to uh, Genesis 2. And it's here, I think, that the question comes really to the fore of the historical Adam, which we said is our topic, although we've laid a lot of background for it. Uh, Why should we think of Adam not as a figure or a metaphor, but as an actual figure uh, in the history of of not just the creation, but of the world. Well, in um, in the uh, shift that takes place between Genesis uh, two verse three to chapter two verse four, there is this transition formula that I've mentioned before. These are the generations of, often translated. These are the accounts of. But what it's talking about is okay. What developed here? and uh, out of this whole cosmos. But one of the things that happens when we make that shift, and there's a lot of background to this further on in Genesis as well in terms of how this expression, these are the generations of his use. But as you go on, what you begin to see in Genesis 2 that you simply do not see in Genesis 1 is what we could call historical markers. And these historical markers tell us that now this is taking the perspective of the world and the history and the situation of ancient Israel in that ancient Near Eastern world. For example, it talks about the four rivers of the garden. Uh, and in verse 14, uh, the first couple of rivers are, are difficult to identify, but we come to the verse 14, we have two rivers. We have the Tigris and we have the Euphrates. We're talking about the rivers that run through Iraq today. At that, at we, we often refer to that in history as Mesopotamia, between the two rivers. The point here is that it talks about the Tigris as east of Ashur, Assyria, but then it talks about, it just mentions the Euphrates and doesn't give any description. All of the other rivers have a description about where they are, but the Euphrates, there's no description because everybody knew where the Euphrates was. It was there. And it was part of a framework within which the garden was planted in Eden. So the point is that we start getting these kind of historical markers in chapter 2 that tell us, oh, we're down into real geography here. We're down into the real world uh, where we actually live. And the ancient Israelites would have actually known that. So that's one clue. Uh, other clues that come uh, from within Genesis is this movement of uh, the generations and the genealogies that run through the book that connect the first part of Genesis to the parts that follow. Is that is that another feature that we're ta- that we're looking at? Yeah, that particular formula. The 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 Hebrew word for generations is toledot. It comes from yalad to mean to be born. And uh, this, the natural place to find this is in uh, tribal kind of genealogical history. 
And we know that the patriarchs come uh, and, and actually live in that particular way. Uh, tribal groups, Abraham comes out of Mesopotamia from a tribal context and so on, and he moves out from his kin and from his family, uh, and he comes into Canaan. Well, what we have is through the book, starting not only in the early part, but thinking first of the patriarchal current, starting with uh, Abraham at the end of Genesis 11 and into 12, we have this generations formula. These are the generations of Terah. These are the generations of Abraham. These are the generations of Isaac. These are the generations of Jacob. And so on, through it, kind of carrying along the account in what we would, what would be the natural way to do history in that context, which is family history, genealogy. And so the, the accounts of the patriarchs are hung on a genealogical framework because that's how you would do history in that kind of world, in that kind of tribal world where you don't have a city government or, or things like that that are running it. Well, what happens is uh, in Genesis, this Toledot formula that finds its natural place in the patriarchal accounts with this tribal uh, sociology, what happens is that keeps getting pushed back into the earlier parts of Genesis, way back to Genesis 2 verse 4, and then in chapter 5 verse 1, these are, this is the book of the generations of Adam, and then in chapter 6 verse 9, these are the generations of Noah, and you go on through and you, you find it also at chapter 10 verse 1, these are the generations of Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and so on, and we finally get to Abraham then in Genesis 12. The point is, that the concept of history and the, the way history would be thought of was such to the ancient Israelites who were organized according to tribal groups, you know, Judah, Benjamin, Ephraim, and so on. They would have understood this as saying, oh, so now we can think of that earlier history as the kind of history that's associated with the patriarchs and with us in our generations. And this term gets used even at the end of Ruth, the generations that come out of the genealogy of Ruth with Boaz, leading to David. So the point is that moving this terminology for these are the generations of way back into these accounts is giving it a sense that we're supposed to think of this as historical in some really significant way. God is a genius storyteller, and the evidence of this is threaded throughout Scripture. In Christianity Today's new show, Holy Curiosity, with me, Kat Armstrong, we explore storied connections threaded throughout Scripture from the Old Testament to the New. Our first miniseries, Connecting Dinah and the Woman at the Well, welcomes experts like Drs. Tim Mackey and Diane Landberg to give us insight and context into the physical location and meaning of these two stories. These stories will spark holy curiosity in your own faith, because once you see these connections, you can't unsee them. God wastes no person, place, or thing. Listen and subscribe to Holy Curiosity with Kat Armstrong on your favorite podcast platform. And so when we see this picked up in the New Testament with... Uh, um, 
we see this picked up in the New Testament with Luke and the genealogy that we have there, you know, that that genealogy extends all the way back to Adam. Or when we get to the discussion of Romans 5, we talk about uh, Adam in comparison to Christ, and we're comparing two kinds of real humanity, if I can say it that way. When we come to 1 Corinthians 15 and we have the story of the resurrection of Jesus and how he brings that uh, which he makes alive, that which has been dead, and we compare it to the situation with Adam, where, where these comparisons are important, uh, not just as theological statements and theological metaphors, but they really are depicting two ways in which humanity can relate to God, and one is through a real death, and the other is through a real life. Yeah. Um, and so it's picking up on that structure uh, of of the generations and of the passing on of the baton, if you will, that we see in Genesis, and and works off of that. So it's very sensitive to the to the to the inherent literary theme that uh, Genesis possesses. Yeah, actually, this is shows up in so many different ways in in the Bible. If you look at First Chronicles, the first nine chapters are genealogies because it starts with Adam. And it goes on up. It connects, again, Adam forward into history. And the, the idea is that, you know, this is a real history here. Uh, and the idea is that that, that, just, that just, again, gives us this kind of, okay, we anchor it back there. We don't start history way up here. It anchors back there. And, of course, we also have Acts 17, Mars Hill, where Paul gets up and says, you know, from one man, uh, humanity emerged, and then again we get the building up of this uh, Adamic line on the one hand, and then what Christ brings, although Paul doesn't get to finish his speech when he mentions resurrection, but you can see he's building this two humanities picture as well uh, that we also see in Romans 5. Yeah. So uh, we, we've got lots of places in, in uh, Genesis 2 that point to this reality. You know, even Jesus deals with this when he uh, talks, gets the question on marriage, and he takes the question of marriage back to, the, to Adam and Eve and discusses uh, their relationship as the prototype for marriage. So, so all these connections at multiple levels saying that the roots of our history go back to this one figure, um, point to this, th- this historical rootage of this figure. And, and Genesis 2 is really the starting point for that story. Yeah, and the story uh, from Genesis 2 continues through chapter 3 and through chapter 4. The unit actually extends from chapter 2, verse 4, all the way to chapter 4, verse 26. We don't get the next Toledot, the next generation's indicator until chapter 5, verse 1. And and so we see, like in chapter 4, various uh, regional things pointed out. We also see uh, the arising of civilization, different kinds of, of occupations and so on. So it's it's tying it into how man actually lives um, in chapter four after after the fall. Now, lo, lo, let's, uh, is there anything else in Genesis two that we should mention before we turn our attention to Genesis three? Uh, I think one of the the things is to reemphasize again the importance of man and woman and the unit, because um, when God says it's not good. That's the first not good, and it's it's connected with He's not done yet. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, he He's made the man out of the dust of the ground in chapter two, verse seven. 
but it's not good for the man to be alone. Uh, aloneness uh, is an excruciating uh, sort of thing. We're designed to have a bond with, with first the man and the woman bond, but then bonds with one another, connections. And uh, this is an important part of what is really emphasized, of course, uh, in chapter two. And uh, it, it is an important point, and that is, and it, and it is a oneness uh, uh, of, of differentiation and the ability to multiply at the same time. Because yeah. uh, if he had created other males and that had been it, uh, you know, um, that the creation would have had a very short history. Uh, yeah. So, so the yep. idea of male and female designed to complement one another and to bring to fruition the call of God to be fruitful and multiply that we get from chapter one uh, is is seen in the way um, male and female are created in chapter. Too. We'll, we'll come back to that theme, not not in this podcast, but in other podcasts as we turn our attention to issues related to um, sexuality and our identity as humans and how we relate to one another. But that is a very, very important uh, foundational point for, for all of that discussion. Yes, yes. We are, we're, we're intended to do life together as a functional unit that, that is one flesh. You know, we're, we're intended to to do it together. Okay, now uh, let's talk uh, about Genesis 3 and the issues here. And of course, this is uh, the issue of the fall that create, creates the predicament that uh, walks out in terms of the plot of the Bible, in terms of the entirety of the salvation story. Um, we've already talked a little bit about where did evil come from, how can the serpent uh, uh, be there, be be evil, be occupied by a voice, which tells you that something unusual is going <laughs> on. Uh, let's talk a little bit about about that particular image, the idea of a serpent who speaks and who doesn't crawl yet. The the very nature uh, of the account is is it raises all sorts of very interesting questions uh, for people. Uh, but it doesn't answer all of them directly. Uh, one of the things, and it's an intriguing narrative, I think it's supposed to draw us in. Uh, it's there, it, part of it is just to make us wonder, but one of the things that the account does is it kind of develops what I might call a narrative theology of, of fallenness. It, it's, like, it's like an archetypal account, not in a Jungian sort of sense, but in the sense that we keep on replaying the dynamics of the fall. It's it's not just what happened, it's what continues to happen. It's what we continue to do in our corruption. And so it's important to see the dynamics of how that actually works and the different things, deception and doubt and illegitimate desire and so on, to shame, to fear, to scrambling, to hiding, you know, all the different things that go on there. One of the other things that stands out I think people often ask is, is how could the man and woman fall if they weren't already sinful? How could they do that? And I think the only answer that the text really gives is that it comes from the outside. It comes from this serpent, this one who is going to corrupt the image of God as an attack upon God himself. And so the, 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 the narrative actually tells us 
uh, gives an answer to uh, how could this have happened in the first place. And uh, the 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 serpent as a as a talking figure. There's another etiology here, if I can say it that way, because at the beginning he doesn't crawl. At the end of the story, after the curse, he's now uh, committed to to uh, slithering on the ground. Uh, it's 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 an important account because it the core of the challenge from the serpent is is that God has spoken something that you don't need to believe. Uh, has God really said you will surely die? And and the whole point is to doubt the way in which God has set up the creation and yeah, what He says about one- it. One of the things that really stands out to me, that again, there's sets whole set of dynamics here. One of this is really the serpent seems to be wanting them to doubt two things. One is the goodness of God in the first place. Is it really good that God is not letting you eat from this tree? You know, yeah, that this is your right, your entitlement. Yeah, right. In yeah. other words, is God really good? And then he wants them to doubt the repercussions of rebellion against God. It really isn't that serious, is it? You know, the, these kinds of things. And in fact, you know, if you do this, you'll be even better. Uh, and so this is the kind of thing that's going on. But if you think about it, how much of our own corruption and our own sinful actions coming come out of not really believing what God has already given us is good enough? Mm-hmm. Um, these kinds of things are just endemic to the nature of our fallen condition. Yeah, and so this, this account is is not only histor- uh, historical in its exchange, but it's epic in its, in its significance, because what it does is it, it puts in one story the story that we all live in one way or another, in that we, you know, when we take on our independence, or when we have a sense of entitlement that separates us from God, or when we secularize our world and try and de-theologize it, if I can coin a term, um, you know, all these uh, actions are nothing but mirrors of what took place in Genesis three, and nothing but mirrors of of what theologians call the fall, and uh, leading to tragic consequences, um, deep consequences, even far beyond. Uh, the damage of merely having made a very bad choice. Yeah, it's a, it really um, puts us in a bad place. It tells us how we got into the mess we're in. And uh, one of the things that, that I've thought about um, is <clears throat> how the, the serpent was able to get the, the first Adam, but like in Matthew 4, the temptation of Jesus, he wasn't able to get the second one. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's, I think it's a mirror of this whole thing. This whole connection uh, is important, even on levels where, where the name Adam isn't even used. Yes, and you've, and you've brought us to a place that I kind of want to wrap around as we close, and that is the contrast between Adam and Christ, which, of course, the New Testament makes so very much of, that, that there are these two kinds of humanity. There's the humanity that, has, that, has, that goes its own way. Uh, that separates from God and is separated from God and that suffers the consequences. And then there's this redeemed humanity by the grace of God that comes not because of something man does for himself, but comes because of what God does on behalf of man to reach out and pull him out of this mess, if I can say it that way. Uh, And 
in doing so, we get a, a second Adam whose extension of grace because of the extension of sin that it covers is, is greater than uh, the damage that Adam can do because the damage that Adam did can be reversed. And it can be reversed by participating in the very grace of God uh, that comes back to these core ideas of we're made for fellowship, we're made to engage with God, we're made to honor God, we're made to serve God, and our lives should be oriented in that way. And Jesus points us in that direction, not only by forgiving our sin, which is very, very important, and he removes the stain and the guilt and the separation, but he also gives us that which, uh, which enables us to live, and that's required for real life. Uh, and that is to be reconnected in this relational way to the very God who created us in His image. The the thing that that as you were talking, I was thinking, is, you know, we got ourselves into this mess, but we can't get ourselves out. Mm-hmm. We're really dependent on God's grace, and that's that's something that people really need to understand. Is that it's purely by grace. It's it's a gift from God what He has done. And, um, and we can't earn it, and we, we're not designed to. We're designed to simply trust Him with what He has told us is true and to respond to it and trust in Christ alone with no merit of our own. And one of the things that stands out in my experience in the world is somehow we want to think that, that we can manage it, but we can't manage this. We're totally dependent upon what God has done for us in Christ. Yes, and in that we, we you know, the, the way you participate in it is not by doing something that you earn. The way you participate in it is simply by uh, receiving the gift uh, of God's grace that He offers. I, you know, I, I often used to illustrate this in, in talking about the, the what the gospel is about, that, you know, a gift, a Christmas gift doesn't do you any good if you don't pull it out from underneath the tree and open it up, uh, you know, you've got to receive the gift that someone gives, otherwise it just sits under the tree. And uh, that's what we're talking about with God's grace. God's grace and God's presence in terms of what He offers through Jesus doesn't do us any good unless we embrace it. And we, and we see it in this light of the contrast of who Jesus is and who He is in light of who Adam was. Uh, and uh, and uh, who Jesus is, and we see it in light of who we are. If we're disconnected from God, we're in the we're in the very place that Adam uh, found himself, and we're in the very need that Adam had. That's all met by what uh, Jesus Christ does. Yeah, and and we show that we're we're in Adam by the way we live day by day, and what God wants us to show is that we're in Christ. And well, you don't need much proof of that. We're pretty dysfunctional. All you have to do is turn on the television at 10 o'clock at night or look at the way a lot of people relate to one another within their families or within their homes and, and, and the destruction and dysfunction that we often cause. And we know we have deep needs. And really, um, uh, in one sense, the gospel is about being honest with who we are apart from God and appreciating uh, that the only way we can be the way we're designed to be is if we connect to the one who created us to be that way. And uh, Yeah, I, I think of uh, Colossians 3, where it talks about being renewed to the image of the creator, you know, the, the whole work of God. 
that's what it's about, is making us who we are designed to be in the first place. And that's why this discussion on historical Adam is not just an abstract discussion of history or myth or literature. It really is about the story of humanity. And uh, because it's about the story of humanity, thinking about who Adam was and who he is in each of us um, is a very, very important part of, of forming an identity that is, uh, that is properly related to the God who created us. Well, Dick, I want to thank you for being a part of this discussion on Historical Adam, and I want to thank those of you who have listened to the podcast uh, for joining us and taking the time to reflect on these early chapters of Genesis that are so important. Thank you very much. Thank you, Daryl. And uh, we thank you for being a part of the Table podcast, and we look forward to seeing you again, where we again have the opportunity to discuss the connections between God and culture. For listening to the Table Podcast, Dallas Theological Seminary. Teach truth, love well.